I still need what artists need, which is space and time in order to have a generosity toward my own material. Was that terribly romantic? Yes. So I am a child of pop and movies. I had an idea. Idea. Art needs to be defined as a set of discursive practices that bring with them the creation of new social subjects. Art really can make a difference. Idea. 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 They go, wait. I would like there to be space and time to do whatever I damn please. Yeah, I want to annoy people. I want to annoy people. Wait! The failure of all kinds of male practices to incorporate these softer elements. Wait! It's true. They go, wait. What? Wait. The visuality. Wait. The visuality. Looks like, but they're just a look. What a look. They have either depth or humor. Looks like, but it's not. I suffer from overload. Idea. Idea. The answer is everything. Idea. Idea. What? It's really important to emphasize that for me, conceptual art and feminism both brought the idea of art as an open process of inquiry. Idea. Idea. Art needs to be defined. It's true. I am an image. What? An image. What? I was a post-pop artist. Idea. My critique of pop was its paranoid insistence on naivete and disconnection from any kind of conceptual critique. It's not existential honest. Wait! Idea. Idea. Wait. They go, wait. Idea. Idea. Wait. I'm rushed to be constantly involved in the production, reproduction, installation, and reinstallation of work-produced text, which I have to write in five minutes, literally, or, you know, one day.
During the same years in which Robert Smithson was exploring the empty spaces of the American peripheries, architects were trying to comprehend what was spontaneously growing in the territory before their incredulous eyes. Looking up from their analysis of historical centers, typomorphological relations and urban tracings, architects realized that something was happening around them that they had refused to notice and that eluded other categories of interpretation. They couldn't understand how a sort of cancer had gotten hold of the city and was destroying it. Around the city, something had been born that wasn't city and which they didn't hesitate to define as non-city or urban chaos. A general disorder inside which it was impossible to comprehend anything except certain fragments of order randomly just opposed in the territory. Some of these fragments had been built by the architects themselves, others by speculators, while others still were the result of intervention originating on a regional, national and even multinational scale. The vantage point of those who observed this type of chaotic city was located inside the historical city. From this position, the architects approached the thing the way a doctor approaches a patient. It was necessary to cure the cancer, to restore order. What was happening was unacceptable. It was necessary to intervene, requalify, to impose quality. At this point, it was also noticed that, once again there beside the historical city, in the periphery, there were large empty spaces that were not being utilized, that could lend themselves to large-scale operations of territorial surgery. Given their large scale, they were called urban voids. Design would have to work on these areas and bring new portions of order into the chaos of the periphery, to reconnect and recompose the fragments, to saturate and suture the voids with new forms of order, often extracted from the quality of the historical city. Even today, many architects approach the cancer of the periphery with these intentions and these operative modes. With the downfall of these positivist certainties, the debate on the contemporary city developed other categories of interpretation. Attempts were made to look at what was effectively happening and to ask why. A first step was to understand that this system of disintegration extended far beyond the limits of what had been thought of as the city, forming a true territorial system, the diffuse city, a system of low-density suburban settlement that extends outward, forming discontinuous fabric sprawling over large territorial areas. The inhabitants of this city, the diffuse settlers, were people who lived outside of the most elementary civil and urban laws, inhabiting only the private space of the home and the automobile. Their only idea of public space was the shopping mall, the highway rest stop, the gas station and the railroad station. They would destroy any space designed for their social life. These new barbarians had invaded the city and wanted to transform it into that global happy valley where everyone lives in a single family house, in a habitat whose only outward extensions are real highways and the virtual highways of the internet. Observing this new territory that had sprouted up everywhere, in various local versions, it became increasingly evident that apart from the new objects of anonymous building development, there was also a presence that, after having long been a mere backdrop, was increasingly the protagonist of the urban landscape. This presence was the void, empty or open space. The model of the diffuse city effectively described what had spontaneously taken form around our cities, but once again it analyzed the territory by starting with the full parts, the solids, without observing inside the empty parts, the voids. And the inhabitants of the diffuse city in fact, did not spend time only in the houses, highways, webs and rest stops, 
but also on those open spaces that have not been inserted in the system. In effect, the open spaces turn their back on the city to organize their own autonomous parallel life, but they were inhabited. They were the places where the diffusion dwellers went to grow vegetables without a permit, to walk the dog, have a picnic, make love, and look for shortcuts leading from one urban structure to another. These were the places where their children went in search of free spaces for socializing. In other words, beyond the settlement systems, the outlines, the streets and the houses, there is an enormous quantity of empty spaces that form the background against which the city defines itself. They are different from those open spaces traditionally thought of as public spaces, squares, boulevards, gardens, parks, and they form an enormous portion of undeveloped territory that is utilized and experienced in an infinite number of ways, and in some cases turns out to be absolutely impenetrable. The voids are a fundamental part of the urban system, spaces that inhabit the city in a nomadic way, moving on every time the powers that be try to impose a new order. They are realities that have grown up outside and against the project of modernity, which is still incapable of recognizing their value and therefore of entering them.
Millennium, Part 1, Jihad. When two set out to dine or duel together, a third appears. Tertium quid, parasite, witness, prophet, escapee. Five years ago, it still remained possible to occupy a third position in the world, a neither-nor of refusal or slyness, a realm outside the dialectic, even a space of withdrawal, disappearance as will to power. But now there's only one world, triumphant end of history, end of the unbearable pain of imagination, actually an apotheosis of cybernetic social Darwinism. Money decrees itself a law of nature and demands absolute liberty. Completely spiritualized, freed from its outworn body, mere production. Circulating toward infinity and instantaneity in a Gnostic pneumosphere far above Earth, money alone will define consciousness. The 20th century ended five years ago. This is the millennium. Where there is no second, no opposition, there can be no third, no neither nor. So the choice remains. Either we accept ourselves as the last humans, or else we accept ourselves as the opposition. Either auto-monotony or autonomy. All positions of withdrawal must be considered from a point of view based on new strategic demands. In a sense, we're cornered. As the old-time ideologues would have said, our situation is objectively pre-revolutionary again. Beyond the temporary autonomous zone, beyond the insurrection, there is the necessary revolution, the jihad. Two, sameness. 21st century money is a chaos, while 20th century ideology was merely an entropy. Both bourgeois and anti-bourgeois thought proposed a single world, unified in consciousness by science. But money alone will actually achieve that world. Money is not migratory, for the nomad moves from place to place while money moves from time to time, obliterating space. Money is not a rhizome, but a chaos, an interdimensionality, inorganic but reproductive infinite regressive bifurcation, the sexuality of the dead. Capital, then, must be considered a strange attractor. Perhaps the very mathematics of this money, out of control, could already be traced in such esoteric webs as SWIFT, the private internet for banks and arbitrage houses, where two, three trillion dollars a day disports itself in cyberspace and less than 5% of it refers even obliquely to actual production. The one world can deal with chaos, but it reduces all true complexity to sameness and separation. Consciousness itself enters into representation. Lived experience, which demands presence, must be denied, lest it threaten to constitute another world beyond enclosure. In a heaven of imagery, there persists only the afterlife of the screen, the Gnostic stargate, the glass of disembodiment, infinitely the same within an infinity of enclosures, infinitely connected, yet infinitely alone, immeasurable identity of desire, immeasurable distance of realization. Three, management of desires. The one world cannot package pleasure itself, but only its image, malign hermeticism, a kind of baraka in reverse, the event horizon or terminal of desire. The spirituality of pleasure lies precisely in a presence that cannot be represented without disappearing. Inexpressible, unimpeachable, possible only in that economy of the gift that always exists or is always reinvented beneath the orthodoxy and paralysis of exchange. Desire is defined here as movement along such a trajectory, not 
as the itch that money can scratch. Radical theory has recently developed a problematic of desire based on the perception that capital is concerned with desire and able to satisfy it. Desire, therefore, is selfish and reactionary. But Walter Benjamin has already shown that capital's concern is precisely not to satisfy desire, that is, to provide pleasure, but to exacerbate longing through the device of the utopian trace, the metaphysical shenanigans of the commodity, to paraphrase Marx. To say that capital liberates desire is a semantic absurdity based on a mistranslation. Capital liberates itself by enslaving desire. Fourier claimed that the 12 passions, unrepressed, constitute the only possible basis for social harmony. We may not follow his numerology, but we catch his drift. Against the negative hermetism of the one world and its sham carnality, opposition proposes a gnosis of its own, a dialogics of presence, the pleasure of overcoming the representation of pleasure, a kind of touchstone. Not censorship, not management of the image, but the reverse, the liberation of the imagination from the empire of the image, from its overbearing omnipresence and singularity. The image alone is tasteless, like a bioindustrial tomato or pear, odorless as civilization itself, our society of safety, our culture of mere survival. Ours is partly a struggle against colonial hearing and imperial gaze and for smell, touch, taste, and for the third eye. If desire has disappeared into its representations, then it must be rescued. Silence and secrecy are demanded, even a veiling of the image, ultimately a re-enchantment of the forbidden. Only an eros that moves toward escape from enclosure within the banality of the image, and here consciousness scarcely matters, can harmonize with the aesthetic of the jihad, whether it be expressed in conventional or unconventional roles or acts seems almost irrelevant. Sexuality itself can be considered entheogenic. Like the sacred plants, it can provide not only cognitive structure, but also imaginal content. The festal, for us, is at least a serious joke, an old definition of alchemy, if not a ritual necessity. Enlightenment is also a material bodily principle, and our secret is that our project need not be built exclusively on Nietzsche's nothing.
Intimacy means we are caught in desire. Hegel held that philosophy wasn't just about ideas, it was about attitudes toward ideas. These attitudes were as yet unthought ideas, ideas that hadn't yet been realized consciously. If, as Donald Rumsfeld has claimed, there are known knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns, there are also, as Isaac adds, unknown knowns, things that we know, but we don't know that we know them, the unconscious, if you like psychoanalysis. Once you realize what your attitude towards an idea is, that attitude itself becomes an idea, towards which you have yet another attitude, which you'll need to figure out, and so on in a progression that Hegel calls the phenomenology of spirit. Like a vanishing point in a perspective picture, ideas select for certain ways of being understood. Some call this strange feature ideology. Ideology is not well understood, because we think it means belief, which we think means an idea you are holding on to tightly. These two assumptions are themselves ideological, and obscure what ideology is. Attitudes are automated features of ideas. They just pop up when you have them. They aren't subjective states independent of ideas. That's why attitudes are hard to get rid of. They're hardwired into that side of reality rather than this one. Hegel gave the attitude a name, the beautiful soul, which he found typified in Romanticism. The beautiful soul suffers from seeing reality as an evil thing over yonder. Is this not precisely the attitude of many forms of environmentalism? Nature is over yonder, the subject is over here. Nature is separated from us by an unbridgeable ontological wall, like a plate glass window. Plate glass was the romantic period invention that enabled shops to display their wares as if they were in a picture frame, and therefore belonged to another order of reality. Plate glass is a physical byproduct of a quintessentially romantic production, the consumerist. Not the consumer, but the consumerist, someone who's aware that she is a consumer someone for whom the object of consumption defines her identity. Consumerism implies an identity that can be collapsed into its object, so we can talk of vegetarians, hip-hop fans, opium eaters, and so on. One style stands out, a meta-style that Campbell calls bohemianism and I call romantic consumerism. This type of consumerism is at one remove from regular consumerism. It is consumerismism, the realization that the true object of desire is desire as such. Romantic consumerism is window shopping enabled by the plate glass and now by browsing online, not consuming anything, but wondering what we would be like if we did. Romantic consumerism can go one step higher than the Kantian aesthetic purposelessness of window shopping when it decides to refrain from consumerism as such. This is the attitude of the boycotter. The boycotter transmuted objects of pleasure into objects of disgust. To display good taste, you have to know how to feel appropriate disgust, how to turn your nose up at something. The attitude of the boycotter is that she has exited consumerism, but this attitude is itself a form of consumerism. It's a performance of a certain style of aesthetic judgment. 
Believing you've exited consumerism might be the most quintessentially consumerist attitude of all. In large part, this is because you see that the world of consumerism is an evil world. Over yonder is the evil object, which you shun or seek to eliminate. Over here is the good subject, who feels good precisely insofar as she has separated from the evil world. Eagle's beautiful soul claims precisely to have exited the evil world. Eagle doesn't claim that the world may or may not be evil. What is wrong with the beautiful soul is not that it's prejudiced and rigid. The world is not some object about which we can have different opinions. The problem is far subtler than that. It's that the gaze that constitutes the world as a thing over yonder is evil as such. The environmental fundamentalism that sees the world as an essential, living earth that must be saved from evil, viral humans is the very type of the beautiful soul's evil gaze. This environmentalism is a form of anti-consumerism which puts it at the summit of consumerism, not beyond it. It is the most rarefied and pure form of consumerism. Beautiful Soul Syndrome plagues it, because it sees consumer objects and consumerisms, the various styles, as so many reified things over yonder from which it distances itself with disdain. How do we truly exit from the beautiful soul? By taking responsibility for our attitude, for our gaze. On the ground, this looks like forgiveness. We are fully responsible for the present environmental catastrophe, simply because we are aware of it. No further evidence, such as a causal link that says humans brought it about, should be required. Looking for a causal link only impedes us from assuming the direct responsibility that is the only sane, ethical response to global warming and the sixth mass extinction event. It's worse than a waste of time to keep trying to convince people that environmentalism is a right way of thinking, a right attitude. The current ecological emergency should have proved to us that the environmentalist attitude, that there is a world that is separate from me, that nature exists apart from human society, is not only wrong but also dangerously part of the problem, if only because it provides a good alibi while impeding us from doing anything about our dilemma. The message of ecological awareness should not be We are the world, that awful charity song, but rather We aren't the world, and never were. Letting go of a fantasy is even harder than letting go of a reality. Beautiful Soul Syndrome wants to induce the correct aesthetic appreciation of the world, but this aesthetic attitude can never truly become an ethical one. Aestheticization is synonymous with evil because it holds the world at a distance from which to size it up. Thus the attitude that says we need more evidence on global warming before we act, ironically joins the attitude that says if only you could experience nature in the raw, you wouldn't have these evil beliefs about destroying it. In both cases, violence hides beneath projections of innocence. Both statements come bundled with attitudes of awaiting some compelling and mediated aesthetic experience issuing from beyond the subject. They are both examples of beautiful soul syndrome. Both require a certain aesthetic distance, an evaluative, pseudo-contemplative, meditative stance. If you beat up the beautiful soul, however, and leave it bleeding to death in the street, aren't you also a victim of beautiful soul syndrome? However much you try to slow off the aesthetic dimension, 
doesn't it stick to you ever more tightly? At a certain limit, transcending beautiful soul syndrome means forgiving the beautiful soul. Recognizing that we are responsible for this syndrome, whether we picture ourselves that way or not. The only way out of the problem is further in, jumping into our hypocrisy, rather than pretending to be disillusioned and beyond ideology without attitudes. This is a test case for our ability to progress in social collectivity. It means dropping various supporting concepts that provide the background against which regular thinking takes place – nature, environment, world, life. We can't have our cake and eat it too. That's consumerism, which is beautiful soul syndrome. The only way out is in and down, which is why I call my approach dark ecology. Dark Ecology realizes that we are hopelessly entangled in the mesh. Dark Ecology finds itself fully responsible for all life forms. Like a detective in a noir movie, it discovers its complicity with the crime. After the end of the world, don't you know that yet? After the end of the world, don't you know that yet? After the end of the world, don't you know that yet? After the end of the world. Don't you know that yet? After the end of the world. Don't you know that yet? After the end of the world. Don't you know that yet? After the end of the world. Don't you know that yet? After the end of the world. Don't you know that yet? After the end of the world. Don't you know that yet? After the end of the world. Don't you know that yet? After the end of the world. Don't you know that yet? After the end of the world, don't you know that yet? After the end of the world, don't you know that yet? After the end of the world, don't you know that yet? After the end of the world, don't you know that yet? After the end of the world, don't you know that yet? After the end of the world, don't you know that yet? After the end of the world, don't you know that yet? Music, Sounds and Words by Zev, Autopoiesis, Mark Matter, Stefan Römer and Martha Rosler, From Scratch, Pound, Ultra Red, Jem Feiner, Wolf Eyes, Tom Disvelt and Kip Balton, Stella Shiwashi, Luke Ferrari, Part Wild Horses Made on Both Sides, Bright Black Morning Light, Hakim Bay, Bellows, David Berman, Honey, Readings of Texts by Francesco Carreri and Timothy Morton. Don't you know that yet? It's after the end of the world. Don't you know that yet? It's after the end of the world. Don't you know that yet? It's after the end of the world.
let's say we want to try to imagine a non-authoritarian green non-monetary anti-authoritarian non-hierarchical or non-separated society a non-authoritarian situation this dream derives from actual memory spiritual anarchism myth and in spiritual anarchism of stone age non-authoritarian society gathering gardening gift economy spiritual anarchist shamano-pagan society for the fact of organized religion. If they, if, if we can use such a strong and dubious word, those facts spiritual of, anarchism of uh, the gift, spiritual anarchism, of shamanism, of, uh, of, of the custom, customs that, that prevent the emergence of the state and of hierarchy, are always there. They're coded in every religious authoritarian or liberatory form of spirituality. Spirituality does not equal religion. Roughly egalitarian. Spirituality is the imaginal creative esprit of the society where no one was too much richer or more privileged than anybody this else. This kind of research, that spiritual anarchism uh, into past and lost um, movements of consciousness, hunter-gatherers and gardeners, uh, might help us Druidism to overcome Sufism, the negativity, spiritual radicals, or the potential negativities of our own, the gift economy, intellectual heritage, radical Kabbalah. We could go on refusing to accept that dichotomy, proto-shamanic, either meaning or non-meaning. We could refuse. Druidism. We could go on demanding the impossible. Syncretists, which has become really a slogan of anarchism. Tantra in recent decades. The radical Judaism. But what would the impossible be if not a kind of spirituality? The heresy of the free spirit. I mean, it's not physically there because it's impossible. Uh, the return of shamanism. Perhaps not even no, mentally rebirth there because it's impossible. The, the archaic so where could it be if it's not in the spirit? Using that term as loosely as possible. A Gaia hypothesis. We want to know if there really is a spiritual tradition of anarcho something or other of, of non-authoritarian um, mysticism something is such like a thing that. as a genealogy of resistance things return a golden on chain of transmission you reach that same axis again and give a uh, new centralist new dignity sur rationalist Sur-regionalist, we need a re-enchantment of the landscape, the dignity of matter itself, Earth the centrality of, of material, the fact that matter and spirit are really one.